All right. Chaplain uh, Wright is working with the family retreat, leading the family retreat this weekend. So they went to the dugout and they pulled in a relief pitcher. And that's me. So glad for the opportunity to be here and share with you today. And so today I want us to turn in our Bibles to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4. We're going to continue in this series the book of Daniel, the series that he's in. And we're focused on living for God in a secular culture. And so today we're going to look at a a prideful king's royal nightmare. A prideful king's royal nightmare. And so today I'm going to focus our attention upon the subject of pride idolatry and humility. Pride, idolatry, and humility. We're going to look at King Nebuchadnezzar, very proud man. He should have been humble just because of his name, Nebuchadnezzar. But he's a very proud man. He was a man that God had to work in his life to get him to a place of humility. And so that's our focus today. As we think about humility and humbling situations that we've been in, maybe you've been in some situations. You know, I always say, God doesn't need to humble me. I do enough stupid things. <laughs> and that's true for a lot of us, is, isn't it? We can find ourselves in situations and say things that uh, later we go, wow, did I say that or did I do that? And it humbles us. It makes us realize I'm, you know, I, I am so human. And uh, with that, it uh, sobers us up a bit. Former President Ronald Reagan, when he was governor of California, made a speech in Mexico City, and he said this. He said, after I had finished speaking, I sat down to rather unenthusiastic applause, and I was a little embarrassed. And the speaker who followed me spoke in Spanish, which I didn't understand, and he was being applauded about every paragraph. To hide my embarrassment, I started clapping before everyone else, and and longer than anyone else until our ambassador leaned over and said, I wouldn't do that if I were you. He's interpreting your speech. So he appeared to be very arrogant, clapping for himself, you know, which that wasn't his intent. A pastor friend of mine was a missionary in the Philippines, and he was an overseer of several churches, and he was going to visit one of them, and this monsoon had hit, And so they were literally wading through knee-deep water in order to get to a church where he would be speaking. And when they arrived, they were wet and tired, and he stood up to speak. And, of course, the congregation applauded him. And he was learning the Tagalog language, and he intended to say, I am your superintendent, and we have waded through knee-deep water to be with you. But something was lost in translation. He said in in their native language, I am your new superintendent, and you need to bow down to me. So you can imagine how they felt. Here's a pastor telling us to, we need to bow down to him, you know. But isn't that true? We can so easily say things and do things that basically cause us to uh, humble ourselves, realize that we are just human beings. Most people give us the benefit of a doubt and they're very forgiving when we do something that, say something that maybe isn't quite right. But sinful pride can take root in our lives to the point where we think we are the master of our own life. Sinful pride. 
we give ourselves credit for the good things in our lives and our accomplishments, our plans and our goals, our intellect, our material wealth. We give ourselves credit for that. We're proud of that. And that is sinful pride when we take the credit for the things in our life that are going on, for the position that we've made or the promotion that we've made. Napoleon was such a person. He was a person of pride. For over two decades, he was a very defiant man, cocky man, created, and he created turmoil in Europe. And in a bid to regain some of the power he had lost due to a forced exile, Napoleon led his armies in a swath of devastation across the battlefields of Europe. And on June 18, 1815, Napoleon and his armies faced the Allied armies of England, Prussia, Russia, Austria, Belgium, and the Netherlands, which were led by the Duke of Wellington. And before the battle commenced, Napoleon, speaking to his commanding officer, said, We will put the infantry here and the cavalry there and the artillery in that spot. And at the end of the day, England will be at the feet of France and Wellington will be the prisoner of Napoleon. The officer responded, But we must not forget that man proposes and God disposes. With his typical arrogance, Napoleon stood straight and tall, all five foot two inches of him. And he replied, I want you to understand, sir, that Napoleon proposes and Napoleon disposes. And Victor Hugo, the writer, penned these words concerning the battle. From that moment, Waterloo was lost, for God sent rain and hail so that the troops of Napoleon could not maneuver as he had planned. And on the night of the battle, it was Napoleon who was a prisoner of Wellington and France who was at the feet of England. Interesting, isn't it? World leader, world dictator, a man of war, proud of his success, proud of his ability to lead, and God could humble him just like that very easily, just with a different weather weather pattern that he did not suspect. Pride is a ruthless taskmaster. It will convince us that we have all the answers. It will cause us to hide our weaknesses, that we are all-powerful and in control, that we are rarely wrong, that we know better than even God himself. And the passage that we're going to look at today gives us the testimony of a man who learned a harsh lesson about the problem of sinful pride that was in his own heart. And so looking at Daniel chapter 4, we're going to look at the details of Nebuchadnezzar's journey from sinful pride to salvation and how God worked in his life. So far in this series, back in chapter 1, you remember uh, that God raised up Nebuchadnezzar and his people to go to war against Judah, and they took the children of, of Israel, the Jews, into exile in Babylon. Daniel was one of those taken into exile. Also, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we met them last week, were taken into exile during that time. So it was around the time frame of of, uh, 605 BC that Nebuchadnezzar did this. And if you read the, the prophecy of Jeremiah, Jeremiah actually several times, three times in his prophecy says Nebuchadnezzar was used as a servant of God to bring about this situation in Israel, in taking them into exile, in Judah, in taking them into exile. Next slide. And so 
One of the things that we know about Nebuchadnezzar, and Chaplain Wright has mentioned this, Chaplain Croft has mentioned it, is that Nebuchadnezzar was not only a, a military leader that was controlling the whole world at that time, but he was also in a massive building program. Actually, this photo, you can't really tell what it is, but in the British Museum, you can go to the British Museum, and one of Nebuchadnezzar's bricks is in there. Proof that he really did exist. Proof that the Bible's true. So one of his bricks is in there and uh, that he built with and laid foundations of these massive palaces. And it, he, he, it's, it's believed that he didn't make these bricks by lay, laying them in the sun, but they were baked in furnaces. And you remember last week, the three Hebrew children, the three Hebrew young men were thrown into a fiery furnace. So somehow he had made this ability to create these hardened, baked bricks. And with that, he was building an empire and he built his palace. The title on these bricks talked about his commitment to his god, Marduk, and the temple that he was housed in. And so, once again, he's not only a proud leader, military leader, but he is one who is idolatrous. He does not conform to following the God of the Hebrews. And so he was involved in these massive building projects. We talked about a little bit last week, the hanging gardens and that he had built, which were, were a wonder of the world at that time. And how many of you remember somebody that thought that they were in the same lineage of Nebuchadnezzar or at least wanted to present that image? Anyone uh, you remember that did that? You know, we ought to remember this because we've been involved in bringing him down to defeat. Sodom Hussein, right? So Sodom Hussein believed himself to be in the image of Nebuchadnezzar. He even called himself Nebuchadnezzar III. He even minted coins that had Nebuchadnezzar's portrait on it as well as his own portrait uh, on that coin. Also, he began to rebuild the ancient ruins of Babylon and uh, they, uh, one of the things I read said that he actually uh, manufactured 60 million bricks with his inscription on it. So trying to follow in the same vein as this idle person, this model, role model for him, Nebuchadnezzar. And upon his bricks it said this, in the era of Sodom Hussein, protector of Iraq, who rebuilt the royal palace. And so much of his building project was right there in the middle of the ruins that Nebuchadnezzar had left behind. And as I read about this this week, I just thought, you know, why didn't somebody take their Bible to Hussein and said, I wouldn't do that if I was you. You know, there's a king that tried this before and he was very arrogant and it didn't work out very well for him. But obviously his advisors were telling him what he wanted to hear. And so in looking at the scripture today, this is uh, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. It's a testimony, his testimony, of his encounter with God. And so let's look at this together. King, uh, chapter 4, verses, verse 1 through 3, first of all. So King, ne- King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world. It's interesting, right here in the Bible, this king is making a declaration to all the languages and peoples of the world what he has discovered. He says, may you prosper greatly. 
It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. Verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his works. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Right here at the outset, Nebuchadnezzar says, I have learned some incredible things about God. And yet, it didn't come by way of his own revelation. God revealed himself to him. Let's look at the next verse, verse 4. And he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Let's move to slide three. And the first thing I want us to note concerning sinful pride is that pride gives us a false sense of security and control. And really, in Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, he's telling something about himself that really isn't all that cool. He's saying, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. And actually, the word in the Hebrew for flourishing or prosperous means growing green. So it wasn't an organic garden or clean energy he's talking about here. Growing green. He's talking about flourishing. I'm flourishing like a mighty tree. I'm fruitful like a mighty tree. I was in my palace, and I was prosperous and successful. And that's what he's declaring here as he begins this. And as we think about pride, pride in what we have achieved or accumulated causes us to think we have all we need. I'm prosperous, I'm flourishing, no mention of God. It can cause us to just give God lip service or keep him at a distance while we do our thing in life. Our security and our hope are in what we can achieve and gather around us when we are full of sinful pride. Pride causes us to forget that everything we have or are is a gift from God. We didn't choose. Think about it. We didn't choose our intelligence. We didn't choose our family or our origin, our gender, our area of country to be born in, the area we would be born, era we would be born in. We didn't choose any of that. Here we are. And the things that we receive in this life are God's blessings, but So often when pride takes hold in our life, we begin to take the credit and give the credit to ourselves for everything that we have and everything that we possess and everything that we are. And we make achievements and we tell ourselves and tell others, look what I did. And that's how pride can work in our lives in a sinful fashion. And we see this attitude in our culture around us, don't we? This idea of look what we can do without God. Look what we can do without his help. We don't need to ask God for help. We can do this ourselves. And we see that in Nebuchadnezzar's life. The other issue that Nebuchadnezzar dealt with was idolatry, demonstrated on his bricks, stamped in honor of his God and his building projects and all of that. It's all about him, all about his God. He's the one at the top. And uh, one of the things that we see is, even back in chapter 3, remember last week back in chapter 3, that he, he created a 90-foot statue of gold. And he told them that everyone must bow down to this statue of gold. It's believed that it, it probably was his own image. He was such a prideful person. 
And he tells everyone, you must bow down at this image. If you don't bow down to this image and worship this image, that you'll be thrown into a fiery furnace. Last week we saw that, didn't we? The three Hebrew children didn't bow down. They stood their ground. They stood up. They said, no, we serve a different God. And they were thrown into the fiery furnace. But there was a fourth person in that furnace with them, some believing to be Jesus Christ. And they were rescued from that furnace. But idolatry was something that he struggled with as well. I have a definition of idolatry up there given to us by Pastor Tim Keller in Counterfeit's God, Counterfeit God's a great book. And he says this, it is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart or an imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Idolatry. He continues, the human heart takes good things, like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. Interesting comment, isn't it? Interesting thing about idols. Do we struggle with idols? Do we struggle with the temptation to allow idolatry to consume our lives or affect our decisions? I read that again. The human heart takes good things like successful, a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives, the center of our lives, the center of our focus, because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment, and if we attain them. Here's a test to see if we struggle with, uh, uh, with idolatry, if we're idolatrous. He says this, God should be our savior, but we look to personal achievement or financial prosperity to give us the peace and security we need. Idols give us a sense of being in control, and we can locate them by looking at our nightmares. Interesting. What king had a nightmare? The king we're talking about. What do we we fear the most? What if we lost it? Would it make life not worth living? We make sacrifices to appease and please our gods who we believe will protect us. We look to our idols to provide us with a sense of confidence and safety. And I just thought, you know, that is very convicting. for us, to, and, and it's good for us to reflect a little bit upon that, to think about that. God should be our Savior, right? We're here today because He is our Savior. But what else in our life What else is there that it would be a nightmare to us if it was taken from us? What would that be? Would it be our lifestyle? All of the things we've worked so hard to accumulate? Are those the things that would create such a nightmare to us that if we lost them, where would we be? And I think that's a good question. The false sense of security he says, comes from deifying our achievement and expecting it to keep us safe from the troubles of this life in a way that only God can. And fortunately, 
God had a better plan for Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar, prosperous, successful, flourishing, feeling green. Everything is going so well. Everything is so fruitful. My kingdom is going so well. God begins to speak to him. And let's look at this. Daniel chapter 4, verse 5. It says here, I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So he has a royal nightmare that God brings on him. Have you ever had a nightmare or a bad dream? Yeah? I know, I was thinking this week of things that, you know, just think about the things that you've had. I know, you know, I, I Googled to see what, what are the top 10 things that people have nightmares about. And they, there was a whole list of different things. I thought I can relate to that. Okay, I'm normal. I have those things too. You know, worrying about showing up an event with no pants on. You know, we've had that one. You get to, you have a class and there's a research due and you've, the dog ate your uh, research, right? And you don't have it. Your paper's not done. You're supposed to do a briefing for somebody. And it's a very important briefing. And you, during the night, you've, you, for some reason, you just dream all night. It's not coming together. And you're fighting all night to make that thing come together. Well, he has a nightmare. And I want us to look at it together. Verse 6. So I commanded that all the wise men of... So he says, I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. And when the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. And finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. Verse 9, I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the beasts of the fields found shelter and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. In the vision I saw while lying in my bed, I looked and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man And let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass for him. The decision is announced by the messengers. The holy ones declared the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the the lowliest of men. Verse 18, this is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. 
Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So he has this dream, a flourishing dream, a a tree, and it's representative of him. And his dream of the tree, literally, it's chopped down, and it's a stump. And so it's still alive, but it's just a stump. It's not like it was before. And so he called on Daniel to interpret this dream, and here's the interpretation of the dream. Then Daniel also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed by the time And his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all giving shelter to the beasts of the field and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches to the sky. Your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze and the grass in the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from the people and will live like wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your, your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, King, O King, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, and it may be that your prosperity will return to you. I want to move to next slide. Another thing about pride, because even after all of this, pride still kept this king from acknowledging the truth. Nebuchadnezzar is confronted with the truth about his own pride and his idolatry in this dream. But notice what the Bible says. All this happened to King King Nebuchadnezzar, verses 28 through 30. But 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? So God has confronted him through this dream with his pride, with his idolatry, and still he doesn't get it. Still, 12 months pass. 12 months pass and he's walking on his wall and he's saying, look how great I am. And he's refused to accept the truth that is right before his eyes that Almighty God has given to him. And you know, this isn't the first time he's been confronted by God's truth. Remember, that this was that he had also been introduced to God 
the true God back in chapter 2. Because remember back in chapter 2 he had had a dream and Daniel came and he interpreted the dream for him. Remember it was about the kingdoms. Chaplain Croft covered this, the, the, king, the four kingdoms that would come. And after his, this dream was interpreted, this is what he said in chapter 2, 45 through 47. The great God has shown the king that what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. And then it says... King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him homage and ordered that an offering of incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, a revealer of mystery, for you were able to reveal this mystery. It's kind of like, well, why didn't he get it? But for some reason, it's kind of like, well, that's your God and he's great and mighty and I acknowledge that. And yet still, I'm king. Still, I am what I am. And so his pride did not still allow him to embrace the true God. And then in Daniel chapter 3, verse 28 and 29, the three Hebrew children are rescued from the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar says this, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god therefore i decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of shidrach meshach and abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way and so it's almost like god has revealed himself so wonderfully to him as the only true god who else can save people from a fiery furnace and he kind of acknowledges that and yet it still doesn't change him It still doesn't cause him to humble himself fully before Almighty God. And so 12 months pass by and God's giving him time to repent. I just think this is a tremendous story recorded here in the scripture because he's not a Hebrew or a Jew. He is a secular king, a Babylonian that God has raised up to use to bring justice to his own people. And still he really doesn't get it that God is the one that's in Control. Twelve months go by. I wonder, do we ever act the same way in our lives when confronted with God's truth? He confronts us with truth. He shows us things in our life, and we refuse to acknowledge them. He does things in our life, wonderful things. His grace is given to us wonderfully in our life, and we kind of accept it casually, and still we go on. We don't change. We don't grow to maturity the way God would have us grow. I really think that it's a a sign of our times where God is calling us to repentance, the church to repentance, but he's also calling society to repentance. There are so many signs around us that we need to turn to Almighty God. We can't do things in and of ourselves. I thought it was interesting, a couple things in the news just this week. You know, in the the Roseburg shootings, um, our our son and, and his wife had lived in that community and actually... Uh, taught taught school and she was a school counselor and they worked with a couple of the kids that were casualties in that shooting but one of the things that struck me this week was you know we have all these people coming on the news and talking about what we need to do how we need to handle this and you know even they had a mental health worker talking about yeah we need we need to do better when it comes to (laughs) mental health and you know we need to improve all that and Yeah, that's all well and fine, but where is the spiritual leader, the pastor, the the leader that stands up and says, you know, we have rejected God. 
And because we have rejected God, it is influencing what we do. It's affecting our mind. It's affecting our inner nature. We are people that need to repent. We're evil people. We have evil inclination. Instead, we want to leave God out of the picture. We want to push him out. And we want to handle everything with, with, in our own way, in a humanistic way. Yeah, we need to do this or that or whatever instead of, you know, this is what happens when we do not turn to Almighty God and we don't look to Him for solutions. You know, and, and I, of all people, I believe that, you know, there are mental health issues. We as chaplains refer people for mental health concerns. We work together with mental health, and that's part of it. But there's a spiritual quality to it, too. There's a spiritual quality, a spiritual need, a fallen nature. People are fallen in their nature, and they make choices because they have rejected God and affects other people, and yet we don't see that spokesman. They're left out of, they're left out of the commentary. I was also watching BBC News this week, and I thought this was amazing. So there, inter, you remember a few years ago there was a, a movie uh, about the rugby team that crashed in the Andes? And it's 43 years later, and they survived for 12 days. One of the guys went for help, and he got help. And they were interviewing him, and they were asking him, well, how did you survive this? It's amazing that you survived this. And he said this, and it just struck me because uh, of how profound it was to me. This is what he said. This, this, is, this is how we survived this. He said, rugby saved our lives. Rugby? You know, that's what I was saying to myself. Rugby? Rugby saved your life? Where is God in this? And so, yeah, we're going to talk about rugby instead of God saved your life. Okay, I understand. I understand. His training was good. It helped him out. But where is God? Did God intervene? Did God help you? Did God show you what to do? Did he sustain you? That's left out of the equation. We're going to push God out of it. It's all about us. It's how we can do it. You remember a movie a couple of years ago called castaways tom hanks he's on that island how does he survive he talks to wilson huh he talks to wilson wilson is the one that helped him keep his sanity a volleyball that kind of rolled up in the beach with the tide you know and and that came to mind this week i thought oh that's interesting no mention of god and, yet, and we see that. I, I, it's common in our society. Just be more, as you watch the news and as you see the things that are going on to address problems, is God brought into the picture at all? Very little, very little. And you know, that's exactly what was going on with Nebuchadnezzar as well. Pride and idolatry were problems, were walls that kept him from acknowledging that God is responsible for his blessings, the position that he occupied as king, his successes, and yet he refuses to acknowledge that. Well, the, the message gets better. Look with me, because this dream is fulfilled. Verses 31 and 30, through 33. It says, the words were still on his lips, that he was the greatest. It's all about me, as he walked on his wall. When a voice came from heaven, and it says, This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And immediately... 
what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and he ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. And the scripture says seven times and we believe that that's a seven-year period of time past as Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and was in this state. It's interesting that King Nebuchadnezzar reigned from 605 B.C. to 562 B.C., and there's a notable absence of any record of acts or decrees by King Nebuchadnezzar from 582 to 575 B.C., a seven-year period. I wonder what he was doing during that time. Was he ruling his kingdom? Exactly what Daniel said he was doing. He was acting like an animal. He was totally humbled until he was willing to acknowledge God. And when he is at the bottom, he begins to think about God. Stripped of everything, he begins to look up. He's at the bottom. He begins to look up, and he looks up to God. Um, British playwright George Bernard Shaw put it this way. He said, there are two tragedies in life. One is to lose your heart's desire, and the other is to gain it. We don't look at it that way. In our eyes, gaining our heart's desire is the very purpose of life itself. But how many people have achieved their dreams only to be ruined in the process? Success can be just as big a temptation as failure, perhaps more so since success tends to make us take life for granted. While it is true that God speaks to us both ways in our success and in our failures, we tend to listen more when God speaks through sorrow, pain, loss, and personal failure. Success tends to make us complacent, but failure cannot be denied. In that sense, failure can be a gift from God, especially if it breaks our sinful self-confidence and brings us to a place where we acknowledge that God is God and we are not. And that's really one of the lessons of King Nebuchadnezzar, and he had to learn it the hard way. Our soul is more important to God than our success. Your life is more important to God than the things that you can achieve. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 25, Jesus said, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? God is more interested in redeeming us than giving us everything we want. He wants to show his love to us and redeem us for himself. Andrew Murray said, Pride must die in you, or nothing of heaven can live in you. And isn't that true? When we let sinful pride take control of our life, it keeps God out. It doesn't allow us to acknowledge him for who he is. It doesn't allow us to be his servant because we are so proud and we want to take credit for what's going on in our life. And all of that props us up in our life, the things we can accumulate Let's look at side, let's slide the last slide here. And this is our conclusion. And so Daniel is at the bottom, stripped of his pride. And this is his testimony. This is what he discovered when he was at his lowest point. Verses 34 onward. At the end of this time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. 
I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. What a shift in attitude when he was brought to his knees. He sees God completely differently. He sees God as God and him as a servant, and God restores him to his kingdom. I bet you he ruled his kingdom a little bit differently after this point. I want to conclude by just just applying this three ways. First of all, I want to encourage us that what is going on around us, world events, God is in control. God is God. He does what he wants. Nobody's going to stop God from doing what he wants to do in our world. And it's a good place for us to live as believers in faith in Jesus Christ, recognizing God has made a home for us in heaven. This isn't all there is. And so my, the message to me is don't hang on to this so tightly. God's got something better for us. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. You, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go there to prepare a place for you. And isn't it true as believers, our home is there, not here. We get to enjoy this, but our home is there, not here. God's in charge. There isn't going to be a dictator or a ruler that overrides what his plan is. And we, we're part of his kingdom and his plan right here. And so continuing to put our faith in him. Secondly, when God is first in our life, all our achievement, material prosperity, titles, promotions, they, they all are, are seen as God's blessing and his grace in our life. And that's a good place to live. Recognizing everything we have, recognizing, yeah, Lord, you've gifted us to do what we do. You've promoted us to different places as we serve our military. Uh, Lord, you've... Uh, Uh, given us material wealth and when we recognize that he is first and we are second we are his servants all of it belongs to him we're his steward we just serve with it we serve for him and we share it with other people and that's freeing we don't have to hang on to this stuff once again it belongs to him anyway and so we just use it for his glory Jesus said seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well And so God wants us to put him first, make him Lord. Everything else that we receive is just an added benefit for his glory. Number three, like Nebuchadnezzar, we need to be eager to give God praise and to acknowledge our blessings and that our hope is in him. And I really believe we need to practice that. As we live our lives in this place and as we serve, we need to catch ourselves saying, you know, God is so good. The blessings that come into our life, giving him glory, Letting other people know around us, this isn't a humanistic world we live in. God is our Savior, our Lord. He has given us this or that. We need to tell people. 
tell people God is alive, at work, he does what he pleases, he is Lord over all, his dominion will never end, and with that, take comfort in that. I want to have us bow our heads for prayer. The worship team can come back. Today we get to enjoy a time of communion again and to come to God's throne for communion. In order for us to partake of this communion table, really, we have to humble ourselves. In order for us to receive these elements, we're really making a proclamation that we are receiving Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And that strips us of all of our pride. We can't save ourselves, and that's our declaration. Lord, I come to this altar recognizing I can't save myself by my good works or my achievement or anything I've done. I come to this table and I receive the, the blood and the bread, recognizing you paid for my debt of sin upon the cross, recognizing that you're the Savior, and I just received this. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do to save myself. I can't be good enough. I come and receive your grace. And that's really what we do as we receive these elements today. In this moment, take a moment just to confess to the Lord your need for him. If you know there's something blocking your relationship with the Lord, there's sin in your heart or in your life, confess it to him and he will freely forgive you. If you've been proud, too proud to receive correction, too proud to listen, too proud to give God the credit for the things in your life, confess that to him. If an idol has taken the place in your life, something that you serve, confess that to the Lord. Knock that idol out of the way. Put God in that place. And Jesus, this morning, we just are so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. We come to this table not bringing anything of ourselves of value or worth, recognizing that we can't save ourselves as good as we can be. Only you can save us. Jesus, thank you for paying for our debt of sin upon the cross. Thank you that you bore our pain in your body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Thank you that there is healing in you as we put our faith in you today. So Lord, we confess our need of you and Lord, we receive these elements by faith through Jesus Christ. Amen.